prior to this fall, I think by virtue of how how long I was on the road in October and November, prior to the fall, I would come to New York at least once a month, often twice, occasionally yeah. even three times. So I really living between both cities, but all my, you know, earthly possessions are in Toronto. And I haven't been back. This is my first time back in New York City since end of September last year. And that's, this is the longest I've been away from the city in like n- 10 and a half years. Do you consider yourself a dual resident? I do. It's in your bio, to be I fair. Do. I know. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. It is. And, you know, I think it was more appropriate when I was living in New York and going to Toronto all the time and because yeah. I'm Canadian. Made sense to call myself a dual resident then. The longer I've been in Toronto in Toronto and because of this season that I just had where I was away for four months, that's crazy for me. I feel a little less connected. Yeah. But now with the new record and so the record because there's songs on the album that are about New York, our time here, they bring me right back. So I think in the coming weeks that I'm here again next month and again in March. And so we'll see if I can pick up my New York pace again. You feel like it's still possible to write an interesting jazz song about New York at this point? Yeah, yeah, I do. And it's sort of like, yeah, I don't know what it is, jazz plus. But yeah, it's I mean, this is what I miss most about New York is it is a place of constant stories unfolding right before your eyes and you've so many characters and diverse and interesting people non-conformists of every kind and i just i love it it's so creatively stimulating and it's stimulating on a human level were you here when you were first starting out as a musician no no so i am from vancouver originally born and raised moved to toronto in 98 Studied jazz there um, from 98 to like 2000. Is Toronto where you go in Canada when you want to you study know, jazz? It is. It is for like the workhorse jazz musician, yep. you know, people who want to make a living doing music and music only, but they're willing to take what we call jobbers, like where you go and play for someone's party or wedding or what have you. Vancouver, I assume a lot of jam bands reside there. You know what's funny? Why would you say, I love that because you're kind of right. It just seems like but, a kind of a Birkenstocky sort of town. It, you know, you know, what's interesting about, about Vancouver is you get, creatively some edgier stuff yeah. and like off the beaten path stuff in the it, within jazz more so than toronto i feel like in toronto people are kind of more conforming to like the what we call the toronto sound what is the toronto sound i i mean the, more perhaps that's not fair in jazz i would say it is rooted very much in the traditions of jazz like straight ahead jazz but there's a, a huge contingent of musicians who revere albums that have come out have been um, put out by uh, European labels. And European jazz kind of has its own sound. I mean, of course, it's kind of ridiculous to paint it with such a broad brush. So that kind of has harmonically influenced a lot of the players in Toronto. Mm. So it is a it is still a unique sound, but I feel that in Vancouver and Montreal, you get folks who are kind of painting outside the lines a little more. Was the idea that I want to be a musician, I need to go get all of the classical stuff under my belt so I'm moving to Toronto? Yeah, I feel like maybe there is this, rather than it being, I I have so many, I mean, some of my very favorite musicians and many of them who play on the record reside in Toronto, are from Toronto, and they are creatively extraordinary. And actually what's happening with them is they've branched out and they've, my drummer's touring with Snarky Puppy and George Kohler, who's the bassist, he's always just 
he's not only in the jazz world, but he's playing all kinds of genres and he plays the sitar. And because people want longevity in music, it's sort of, it's a, I don't know if I'd call it ironic, but people, rather than going after something that is artistically just it's the vision, it's what they want to do. Yeah. And like really having the space to explore the full extent of what that may be. I think there is more, not following the rules, but like if you do X, Y, Z, you can play with this person and this person, this person, and you'll be, you'll be working a lot and you'll get to, and maybe you pick up a teaching job and then you do some of these perform around the city, but you also do private functions. And I do think that that's how a lot of professional musicians have uh, enabled themselves to sustain careers in music. It seems like there's a sense in jazz even more so than other contemporary forms of music that you do have to pay your dues and then in order to establish yourself you have to go out and play with all these different players. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's interesting to see because I'm not as up on what some of the like younger up and coming players are are doing but you're not that I'm not old. that old I know I know <laughs> especially not in jazz right thank god for that but I'm curious you know like what the new sound is and yeah. what the kids are doing because <laughs> it's it's interesting there's there's the top-down influence right guys who you revere as you're studying jazz and jazz is a very it is a tradition and in that sense when you're a student of jazz you know you go to the like the the grandfathers the great ancestors of jazz reaching back to the early 1900s and and um you Louis Armstrong yeah and you yeah. study and you listen and you emulate and you imitate but then ultimately i think what the music as an idiom kind of beckons ultimately is pe- that people would find their own uniqueness within that and not just copy not just copy but get that foundation there and then strike out go into new territory because it is really an evolving art form i think ultimately one that wants to evolve there's this top-down thing happening but then there's also this sort of influence from the younger generations on the older generations as they mix and play together. And some of that does happen, which is really nice to see. I think it's important. We see this with all sorts of music, but it does seem to be particularly well-defined in jazz music, the forward thinking versus the traditional. I mean, there is that school of people who really do want to adhere to something that's 20, 40, 50 years old, but that does seem to fly in the face of what jazz has been over the past 100 years. Exactly. Exactly. So there's a bit of a tension there. Yeah. Because you'll get cats, I was going to say cats, we call them, (laughs) who, you know, are young and they're prodigious. And like a young guy who's 12 and he's a prodigy and his stuff is all over YouTube and he sounds like Oscar Peterson. You know, if Oscar Peterson were reincarnated, it would be in the body of this, you know, child. But, and that's impressive and amazing. But I think. Ultimately, we would want to see, the world would want to see, especially as, the, as that kid grows, what is their voice, you know? Yeah. And you'd think that with music, as musicians, we are spongy, but I, I do think there's that. Maybe they are, there are those of us who want to imitate and just learn the craft and do the craft as well as we can do it using somebody specific as like, what's the word? Um, the our North Star, our yeah. template. That's yeah. that's a good, exactly. And that's the goal. That's like the ape to, to get to that apex. But I think for, for others, it is, I mean, and it's not even that it's, they go out of their way to create, to carve a unique path, but they can't help themselves, yeah. you know? I guess part of the question, too, is wondering what people, when people go out for a night and go to see a jazz band play, what are they looking for? You know, certainly what people were going to the Village Vanguard and the, you know, Blue Note and like the 60s versus today is very right. different. Are people just looking for that sort of traditional 
New Orleans experience? Are they looking for a light, cool jazz? Or is there still a, a large enough contingent of jazz listeners out there that's really looking for the envelope to be pushed? That's a really good question. And I think it's the experience of live music that is shaped by the audience, by the room, by how the musicians feel that day, what they ate, whatever occurred between them interpersonally, even even traditional jazz per se, it, or traditional jazz um, is like... They can't see the air quotes on the oh, podcast. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> Quote, traditional jazz, unquote, <laughs> is, you know, because of the improvisation, it, it is, it will always be different from one performance to the next so there's spontaneity and i think sometimes what people are going after is not a specific sound though there may be some but the spirit of the yeah. thing whether it's packaged as cool jazz traditional jazz fusion new orleans i don't know if smooth jazz would quite qualify but just if that spirit of creativity and interaction within the framework of the band as well as with the audience if that's there maybe that's what it maybe that's what they're going after when they go let's go hear some jazz you dj for the cbc you do yeah, a, you do a jazz show how do you program that? What are people looking for in that show specifically? Well, it's very interesting you should ask because when you talk about a behemoth like CBC, it's a brand, yeah. right? And it's public radio. Yeah. So what I discovered, and I love it, I love my CBC family and I'm a Radio 1, CBC Radio 1 talk radio mm -hmm. junkie. And so I'm a host for Radio 2, which is, their, which is their music format. It's now called CBC Music. In fact, they've just made the jump from calling it Radio 2 to calling it CBC Music. There are parameters, you know, because it's a wide audience. They don't want it to be esoteric jazz that isolates people that's so kind of mm. odd and as we Atonal, were saying pushing yeah. the envelope that people will be like what is this you know like you're not sure if your radio is working or right. not when it's <laughs> exactly yeah. right exactly let me check the frequency <laughs> so there is a brand and there are parameters and i have guidelines and i have a producer and the producer does in coordination with one of the music librarians program the music for the show which for me is actually really fun because i've discovered so many artists thanks to the structure that cbc uses so you're not curating at i'm all? not curate i can i can suggest i can make suggestions yeah. and if something is played that really does not resonate for me i can veto but i am very open-minded myself and very respectful of the process that they have in place there's been a massive amount of variety which i applaud my producer lauren hancock for we have a document a shared document where i add artists and song suggestions and she taps into that a lot and that's things to the library so i do see a lot of music that i personally connect with but you know it's good that it's not just my taste it's good that it goes beyond my own <laughs> yeah. taste you know? it's an interesting challenge certainly curating that wide of a genre of music you're right about that and the fact that i'm a performer and i have my own brand it gets a little intense with CBC, right? So people do assume that I'm choosing all the music. They do. So I occasionally will think about how that reflects on me if maybe not everything is what I would choose to, to play in my living room if I had guests over. But it does, it challenges and broadens me. And I like that. There's always something that I can talk about. You know, there's always something there to to kind of sink my teeth into as I'm introducing a song or back-selling a song. And I think more than anything... You know, the music is obviously really important, but as host, I feel that I have this really privileged position where people are inviting me into their space, into their homes, into their car, to their earbuds as they, you know, commute or walk around the city or whatever it may be. It feels a little, it sounds kind of corny, but it feels kind of like sacred space to me. It is pre-recorded because I tour a lot. So when I first listened back 
and heard the shows coming to life kind of via the radio waves in real time, I could see how incredibly good my producer is at what she does in terms of the programming and the arc of the show because it's four hours. So there's an art to it. And it's almost like crafting a show for me as a musician or creating an album. There's a skill to it. So what is your relationship to to that music? I mean, it sounds like there's a fair amount of homework on your part that has to go into this. If she's pulling the music and you have to come up with some sort of authentic, organic reaction to the music, you have to go back and listen to it. That's it. Do some research. Yep. So we've settled into a uh, um, kind of a flow where we call them back. So so song plays and then I respond. We wanted those to be spontaneous. So I actually don't listen ahead and that's great. But then you're actually listening to the music in real time. But when I'm when I'm introducing a song, she gets she puts everything in a little folder and I listen whenever I have time. And um, and then I find something in the song that is compelling to me, but also can relate it to something even non-musical a lot of the time, which they like. They like a little bit of that, again, just for people who are not, not necessarily music nerds. What, I mean, what's the bulk an example of, of a listeners. non-musical thing? Oh, I could be, I don't know, I could say something about, like it could be a song about going to the moon and then start talking about Neil Armstrong, and you know, <laughs> or Toy Story, or okay. I don't know, just like something quirky. It's obviously it's different when there's vocals involved. Yeah, well, well, no, yeah. not necessarily, because you can just go off of the title. I mean, there's yeah. so many launching pads, I guess, and that makes it fun. And when I first started working with them, before they actually offered me my own show, I was subbing for someone else. First time doing radio. I went so far in that direction. And then they were like, listen, people, because you're a jazz musician, they're going to be interested in some of what you have to say as like a a professional, as an expert, you know, Um, as long as it doesn't get too, I keep using the word music nerd, but as long as it's academic, academic, there you go, too too intellectualized, too academic. There is a really big culture around that in jazz, though, it seems like. And I wonder if that's... And so when my peers listen to this show, I think they might feel that, they may feel that it's not entirely authentic. I can tell you it's very authentic, but I'm playing the room. Like I want to use that expression. When you go, if I have a gig... I just played 15 shows in, in Saskatchewan, okay? This is, that would be like playing 15 shows in North Dakota. Some of them were in like dance halls. Everybody in the room was like 70 plus, let's say. I'm not going to go and blast them away with like rock, rock, rock jazz. I'm going to sort of maybe throw in some more standards, some more traditional jazz songs. And so CBC is considering its audience. We want to broaden our audience, but we are thinking, we're thinking about you know, your average listener, whatever that means, you know, and not necessarily pleasing the uber jazz fans, though we hope that they'll enjoy themselves as well. You have to have a really large repertoire then. It sounds like you're playing to very different audiences from show to show. Oh, for me as a musician? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And we do. I mean, I've been out there in the field (laughs) as a player now for like 17 years, 18 years. And I don't know as many standards these days as I once did when I started. But um, but we, we tailor it and we tailor our approach too, right? Like if you're playing an outdoor jazz festival and you're in between Snarky Puppy and Trombone Shorty, you're going to try to find the stuff that maybe hits a little harder because mm-hmm. you have to keep people's attention. This is, the, this is the goal is connection, right? Is connection. The goal of music is to connect and to compel people and to move them. Is there an average listener? I imagine, you know, usually when I talk to musicians, they have some sort of like rough idea of what demographics they're hitting. It sounds like it's very broad with you. It is. And it's part of my, I'd say it's like 
a, a blessing and yeah. a curse because we reach people. The number of times I've had folks come up to me at shows and say, I don't usually like jazz, but I really liked this, which I consider a great compliment. Every now and then I'll be in an environment where you, it's like jazz, 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 you yeah. know, a certain type of jazz. And, and I sort of feel like an outsider. There does seem to be this thing when people are discussing going to see jazz, where jazz is more like comedy, where you'll just go, you'll just go out to see stand-up comedy, regardless right. of who's performing. And there, there seems to be some of that in jazz. Like nobody says, let's go see rock tonight. Right. But there's a let's go to the jazz club or even like the blues it's an club. Experience. People think yeah. of it as an experience, right? Like I'm in a mood and I want to go have some yeah. wine. Like for some it might be sophisticated. They might think of it as mm -hmm. the association might be, you know, that it's sort of a sophisticated high art form, you know. But maybe for others it feels like it's more in the lower chakras and a little yeah. more visceral yeah. and but it's you're you're so right. People do not say, I'm gonna let's go out and hear some pop. Yeah. <laughs> If it's so different from audience to audience and if the vibe is so different, does it ever feel like you're compromising a little bit? No, it doesn't. I feel that we have made our peace. Um, you know, I play with a lot of different bands mm -hmm. and I, I actually feel that we always find a place where it's like, this is authentic. And I guess that's the beauty of jazz, you know, that yeah. you can find an authentic expression, especially if you're the kind of player who likes to kind of crossover with other genres um and it's just a matter of how much if it, if the subgenres within jazz were a palette of colors it's just that you're painting yeah. with more red that day what does authenticity mean though in that respect i think well playing music that is delighting you as mm. you play it the sense of you feeling it as a musician yeah you're pouring yourself into yeah. it you're giving everything you've got and it and then it becomes an offering to the yeah. audience right it's a good way to avoid the doldrums of playing the same song every night it, it's if it's different from night to night absolutely i i mean i know many musicians this is one of the the, the difficult things about broadway um my husband mm. and i when we were living in new york finances were always tricky and but we didn't want to get day jobs you know we just didn't want to and so the equivalent of that to some degree was like go get a broadway show you know go and play with a broadway show and you'd hope the music was good because with like broadway, in the orchestra yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's a drummer. Yeah. So playing drums and percussion. And, and uh, anyway, I have a funny story about that because he was actually approached about playing. He had been rejecting sort of the Broadway thing for a long time. And then someone someone approached him and said, there's a new show we're developing and we'd love you to play with it. And he, he had to say no because he was touring with me. But he came to me and he said, Lila, this music is incredible. I don't know what this, you know, what is going to happen with this musical. It was Hamilton, mm. <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah. But anyway, so... If you're going to be playing exactly the same music, exactly the same way, if that is kind of how the show is designed, you better like it, right? Yeah. If that's, if that's really, every cue has to be the same, and if it isn't, it falls apart. But of course, there are shows where elements of improvisation are built in. This is a question that I, I always come back to on the show, yeah. and, and something that um, you know, I suspect that you've dealt with yourself you know especially as you were sort of like moving out to toronto yeah. and getting getting gigs but the, the question of whether it's when you're seeking a creative field whether it's good to have your day job within the confines of that in a lot of cases it seems like it can potentially spoil your love for something if you see that side of things yeah so do you so you mean a day like a day job not like being a barista at starbucks no but no something no well, like... well the question is you know is, is it better to be a barista at starbucks and then spend your nights uh... 
pursuing that. So that or, the, awe, the feeling yeah. of awe and delight you have. That is a very, very good question because I, I think you're onto something there. And so pe- what people have said to me along the way is, why don't you just teach? Like teach music. Yeah. It's so different. It is different than performing, but it's still music. All, it could be music all day. But because I don't necessarily love teaching the way Mm -hmm. that, you know, I think a person should love to teach if they're teaching, I've always resisted doing it. And I I think if I did, it would. I think music might begin to sour, like this idea of a You're hearing something played poorly over and over Ah! again, right? (laughs) But it's more so that you're not doing what you really love to do and what drew you to music in the first place. If you discover teaching and you experience refreshment with the students and new perspectives and you feel more excited about music than ever at the end of the day, even if you're taxed beyond taxed because of how much you've poured into the whole thing, then that's awesome. You should be doing that. Does the child of two musicians have music thrust upon him? <laughs> no. In fact, we, I think to a fault, we kept it, we didn't keep him away from yeah. it. I mean, I was touring with Sting when I was pregnant, so he was already being exposed. But we we very carefully, we were very careful not to yeah. say, okay, we're going to put you in lessons right away. And we're going to, we just allowed him to experience it in the mess of it all with us, you know, coming on the road with us. And, and of course, he definitely sh- showed proved himself to be musical early on and just that he obviously he loves music loves movement and dance and now he is in piano lessons Mm -hmm. but it was we didn't start him with piano lessons until right before he turned seven can you imagine i started when i was like three and a half i think most normal people can imagine (laughs) right 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 right. but you think with musicians like i'm gonna have my kid doing the suzuki method when they're two and a half you know was it hard to resist the urge to push him into that No, no, because I think we were both aware that we could spoil it for him. And we wanted him to have the same experience of discovery that we had. Did you come from a musical household? Not particularly. There was a piano in the house, obviously, because that's why they decided to put me in lessons, because I climbed up onto the piano and started playing Sesame Street. Literal discovery. Yeah. In that case, yeah. Literal discovery. And my sister did play, but she started when she was like 12. Uh, so anyway, she's nine years older than I. So probably since I was three and a half and she was 12, I must have been hearing her playing as well and been like wanting, like looking at my big sister modeling that and being fascinated too. And my mom, I do recall this. My mom is an amazing woman. She's German. She's very hardworking, keeps a good household. And as a result, is a, is a little, you know, in her own way can be kind of tightly wound. Yeah. And I remember... She wasn't particularly trained, but she would go and play these super simple church hymns on the piano. And I think as a kid, you're so you're so attuned to your parents' energy. Mm. And I think it was just, there was a sense of peace in the room and in the space and in her that I could pick up on as like a toddler that was so attractive to me that I think made music even more. Those early associations are so powerful, right? And I think we wanted it to be that way for Josh, for him to see the joy that we were experiencing in music rather than me yelling at him at the age of two for not curving his fingers, you know? <laughs> is, is that, do you feel like Do you feel like the road was part of that though? I mean, I, I, assume, I assume you get like the best and the worst of being a touring musician when you're on the road. Yes, I think so because we are our happiest when we're yeah. on the road. It's my hmm. happy place. I love touring. I love hotel rooms. <laughs> it's nice having somebody else. I just, I just love, I love different meeting different people from different cultures. And again, it sounds so 
Sounds a little cheesy to say it, but music is a universal language. And I did find it can be a great equalizer. You can have people in a room who, if politics were raised, would, you know, yeah. might come to blows. But if we're all sitting there together and we're having an, a shared experience and music is at the center of it and it's, it, it's about emotion and expression and entering into something together and it just, it's like, it's such an equalizer. Having a kid, though, must have felt at first like you were going to be tethered to a place for a while, right? I mean, yes. you, you you had to be. It's you, you can't just have the baby with you on tour all the time. I tried. <laughs> Did you? Joshua was a surprise. We yeah. had not planned to have kids. So we uh, people were People like, just get pregnant when they're around staying. We always laughed that it was his mojo. And he used to joke about my husband he's the father of my baby which of course not not true not true it's just that tantric force (laughs) that's emanating from staying at all times but so yeah (laughs) that does kind of tether you to a place for a while for for the sake of the child yeah and i well and here's the thing this is where i have a little bit of regret you know because i was 29 Mm. And so hellbent, like had not, I was working with Sting. That was a big break for me as a musician. My like dream, one of my top 10 musicians in the world, like idols, you know, musically speaking. Here I was with him and this is when we get pregnant. Are you kidding? I remember when I, I ran with the pregnancy test to the pharmacist and was like, what is this? And I just went, I'm, I'm touring with Sting. You know, that's what I said. Probably doesn't get that a lot. At the, and uh, <laughs> it was sort of like I thought my career would end. And, yeah. then, and then I was so determined to just keep pressing onwards. And I think I suffered and Josh suffered. I mean, I don't think he feels it now, but he was a colicky baby. And I brought him all over creation with me by myself without Ben once, you know, when he was like three months. And I remember like trying to take a shower to get ready for the gig. And he was wailing in the hotel, like in the in the in the bedroom. And I'd be like turning off, jumping out of the shower with conditioner in my hair, kind of like dancing for him as I'm trying to like it was absurd. It was actually absurd. And I remember there was a day where I didn't eat until showtime and I nearly passed out because I was working so hard to make sure that he was fed breastfeeding in airport bathrooms. But it was really, it was really hard. And then my husband and I, I feel like it's every few weeks we sit down together and we go, is this working? Is what we're doing working? And now that Josh, from about the age of three, once we were like, okay, you are a expressly volitional being now. You can actually tell us what you want and what is working for you. And that might seem kind of ridiculous. Why would you tell invite your three-year-old who's just a fledgling in the world in to you know to participate in your conversations about how to live your lives and, yeah. and and you know work get out there and live and work but we felt that from an early age we should bring him into the conversation and he's had a voice from then like from that point onwards he's and he tells us what he thinks yeah i want to come on tour with you for that well okay so tell me how long are the drives how long is the flight he asked is there a pool <laughs> but it's awesome and it and it's messy and it's ever changing and i think it will remain that way for probably probably until he's out of the house at least in the press material around the the new record it sounds like you wanted to do something completely new this time out i wanted i wanted to pull together all the threads everything Mm. all the different sort of trajectories and pathways i had explored um some of them not you know that didn't necessarily fit together as well and i kind of wanted to see if i could get all that stuff to come together and, and live together under in one place that sounds schizophrenic. Well, <laughs> it was the opposite of schizophrenic. Yeah. 
it it felt schizophrenic before a little bit. Mm. Like, you know, although it's so funny because it was just sort of natural evolution of where I was at. So I, you know, I'd put out these jazz records when I was a student of jazz at Humber College. It made sense that the music sounded a certain way based on what I was studying. And then as I kind of went out the, out into the world and then ultimately started touring with other musicians who weren't necessarily jazz, yeah. like Sting, Paul Cole, Suzanne Vega, that was when I took kind of this left turn and put out a record called House of Many Rooms that was like kind of indie pop rock and all originals. And, um, but that was an expression of the music that I was, it was what I was hearing and it was being influenced by what I was playing when I was going on tour with these musicians, my own sort of version of, of what I was hearing. You know, you take that information and you process it and then you come up with your own thing, right? You spit it out again. And, well, that's a lovely image, isn't it? So as I moved from, you know, 2005, my first record to 2015, 10 years later, House of Many Rooms, it was so different. And I think people were like, man, I read an, a Rolling Stone article where Taylor Swift was being queried about country versus pop. And she said, you know, you can't chase two rabbits. You're going to lose one of them. And it really resonated with me. And I was like, am I chasing two rabbits? I might be chasing two so rabbits. It's like you're chasing all the rabbits on all this one. All the rabbits. But on the new record, I actually feel like I was like, oh, okay. This rabbit and that rabbit and that rabbit and that rabbit, we're going to come together and form a family. And it wasn't forced. It felt very authentic. And we actually recorded 21 songs and we called 12 that we felt, yeah, there's diversity, of course, but they did feel of a piece and especially relative to just how much variety there was and diversity on previous projects and records and from one project to the next. Does it feel like you're still finding your voice? You're still finding your sound after all this time? Yeah, it does. But this but this record to me is the most representative. This is because a purest expression. I think it is because there's songwriting. There's the covers, which I love to do, which were audience requested. That's something I also love to do. All three of them were requested by other people, not you know, my own arrangements of my own choosing. And um, there's kind of a soul gospel flavor in some of the tracks, uh, contemporary thing. We're improvising, mm-hmm. like House of Many Rooms, the last record had no improvising practically at all. And in that sense, I felt like jazz had left the room. And jazz is so, such a huge hmm. part of who I am. Again, jazz is a hard thing to define, exactly. obviously. But it's important to maintain that thread through your music. Improvisation. And the other yeah. thing that was big was... The ability to take the songs from the album and to allow them to sh- take shape and change in live performance, where the songs themselves evolve over the years. Maybe there's new sections we add in. This is what happens with all my arrangements and music from former jazz records. And so these are songs that even in and of themselves can kind of push out of their own boxes. They can shed a skin and you know burst out of the cocoon and become yeah. something new. And, and again, this idea of having to play them to vastly different audiences, they have yeah. to be something that's malleable. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's music that's malleable. That's that's very well put. And I'd say that that is one of my, if I like had a credo or something as a jazz, as a musician, it would be that I want to create music that is malleable. Yeah. You may have just given that to me now. You can have that. I can have it. Does that mean that it's something that you're able to distill to its purest form? That there's some some just sort of like basic kernel of the song that you can hold on to? 
You know, it's interesting. This is a conversation. My husband and I co-produced this record in the last one. With When I toured with Suzanne Vega, uh, I really gained insight yeah. into... Because she doesn't... She's not big on production. She knows a melody when she hears she it. She knows a melody. And she's a wonder... Her gift of narrative and yeah. storytelling is very strong. And she did, she kind of does lean a little more folk. And I feel like that is part of that mm. tradition. Like Leonard Cohen and Joni yeah. Mitchell. But because it was there was something very pure about what she was doing, it made me think more about like what are in fact like if you really distill a song down to its basic elements you know what are those elements and and um and so my husband and I would have arguments with each other because he's a huge Beatles fan as am I and he'd be like man there are songs by the Beatles that the lyrics are silly and you know the melody is catchy enough but really what makes the song is the production the way that it's produced sure. just hits the listener and that's what makes it catchy and memorable and so he was sort of challenging me to not necessarily think about, to get hung up on or worried about how perhaps my songwriting, because I'm not... That's a fair argument. Obviously, George Martin was a very important part of the Beatles' success, but yeah. Yeah. my counter to that would be there's a reason why they stopped touring. Like they're, oh, they stopped playing live and, and that's really when the production started taking over for the band. So if you, if you especially as somebody who is going out and playing for different audiences... Yeah. And you need to change it night to night. You, as a musician, need something to hold on to. Right. And it can't this really be true. production. This is absolutely true. And and I actually, um, another person I've thought about, because jazz musicians sometimes turn their noses up at music that is less sophisticated, quote, less sophisticated, unquote. And so, like, you know, much of pop music yeah. and rock music. And, you know, I love the band U2 and mm -hmm. I love Bono. And I actually think Katy Perry's fantastic. My son loves her. And, you know, music that is successful and that is mainstream. There is something to when you when you do distill it down. And I think especially of Bono because I think he's quite brilliant. And I think he's got great ideas and he's a powerful songwriter. When you look at that core idea, the core melody, it's actually more work to distill it down and have it still be successful. That's, I think, more brilliant than, as you were saying, like dressing it up and it sounds big and fancy and whoa orchestrations and this and so much you know that makes it can make a track sound very big and exciting but if it was just a person and their guitar i.e suzanne vega like does the song still hold up you know so it's a good litmus test yeah. i think it sounds like the two of you have a pretty good working relationship it's really good we yeah. stretch we stretch each other and he's so i'm a bit mercurial and and i, I i'm um very uh I don't know. I'm up and down. You seem very nice so, to me. Oh, thank you. I'm full, <laughs> in, I have lots of joy. In the 45 minutes I've known you, I have you lots seem of, like a happy person. I have lots of joy, yeah. but, mm, but the lows are low. Sure, sure, sure. So he, he's more of an even keel, yeah. and he's very patient, and he's very, so bright, and he's 17 years older than I am, so he has more experience, and I just trust him fully. I just trust his opinion. You may have found the only even-killed drummer in the world. I may have found the only even-killed drummer in the world. There you go, that was Lila Bialy. Her new record is also named Lila Bialy. came out in January. You can also check her out on the CBC. Thanks so much to her, and thanks to the folks at Shorefire for setting up that conversation. Thanks to you guys, as always listening to the show if you like the show there are a number of ways to support us you can like us on facebook rate us on itunes or where you get your podcasts follow us on tumblr that's rlcast.tumblr.com send us an email if you have any feedback it's rlcast at gmail 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. I think that's about it for this week, so stick around because we'll be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.